Book 9, Part 2 of Ovid's Metamorphoses. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Drew Altschul. Metamorphoses by Publius Ovidius Naso. Translated by Brooks Moore. Book 9, Part 2. Even Atlas felt the weight of heaven increase, but King Eurystheus, still implacable, vented his baffled hatred on the sons of the great hero. Then the Argive mother, Alcmena, spent and anxious with long cares, the burden of her old age and her fears, could pass the weary hours with Viole in garrulous narrations of his worth, his mighty labors, and her own sad days. Iole, by command of Hercules, had been betrothed to Hylas, and by him was gravid, burdened with a noble child. And so to Iole Alcmena told this story of the birth of Hercules. Ah, may the gods be merciful to you and give you swift deliverance in that hour, when needful of all help you must call out for Elithia, the known goddess of all frightened mothers in their travail, she whom Juno's hatred overcame and made so dreadful against me. For when my hour of bearing Hercules was very near, and when the tenth sign of the zodiac was traversed by the sun, my burden then became so heavy that the one I bore so large, you certainly could tell that Jove must be the father of the unborn child. At last, no longer able to endure, ah me, a cold sweat seizes on me now, only to think of it renews my pains. Seven days in agony, as many nights, exhausted in my dreadful misery, I stretched my arms to heaven and invoked Lucina and three Nixian deities, the guardians of birth. Lucina came, but before then she had been pledged to give my life to cruel Juno. While Lucina sat in the altar near the door and listened with her right knee crossed over her left knee, with fingers interlocked, she stopped the birth, and in low muttered tones she chanted charms which there prevented my deliverance. I fiercely struggled, and insane with pain shrieked veil revilings against Jupiter. I longed for death, and my delirious words then should have moved the most unfeeling rocks. The Theban matrons, eager to help me, stood near me while they asked the aid of heaven. And there was present of the common class my maid Galanthus, with her red-gold hair, efficient and most willing to obey her worthy character, deserved my love. She felt assured Juno unjustly worked some spell of strong effect against my life. And when this maid beheld Lucina perched so strangely on the altar, with her fingers inwoven on her knees and tightly pressed together, in a gripping finger-comb, she guessed that jealous Juno was the cause. Quick-witted, in a ringing voice, this maid cried out, "'Congratulations! All is well! Alcmena is delivered, a fine child so safely brought forth, her true prayers approved!' Lucina, who presides at birth, surprised, leaped up, unclenched her hands as one amazed. Just as her hands unfastened and her knees were parted from their stricture, I could feel the bonds of stricture loosen, and without more labor was delivered of my child. "'Tis said, Galanthus laughed and ridiculed the cheated deity, and as she laughed the vixen goddess caught her by the hair, and dragging her upon the ground while she was struggling to arise, held her, and there transformed both of her arms to animal forelegs. 
Her old activity remained. Her hair was not changed, but she did not keep her maiden form, and ever since that day, because she aided with deceitful lips, her offspring are brought forth through the same mouth. Changed to a weasel, she dwells now with me. When she had ended the sad tale, she heaved a deep sigh in remembrance of her tired, beloved servant, and her daughter-in-law, Aole, kindly answered in these words, O oh, my dear mother, if you weep because of her, who was your servant, now transformed into a weasel, how can you support the true narration of my sister's fate, which I must tell to you, although my tears and sorrows hinder and forbid my speech? Most beautiful of all Lucalian maids was Dryope, her mother's only child, for you must know I am the daughter of my father's second wife. She is not now a maid, because, through violence of him who rules at Delphi and Delos, she was taken by Andramon, who since then has been accounted happy in his wife. There is a lake surrounded by sweet lawns and circling beauties, where the upper slope is crowned with myrtles in a fair sunny groves. Without a thought of danger, Dryope, in worship, one day went to gather flowers, who hears has greater cause to be indignant, delightful garlands for the water-nymphs, and, in her bosom, carried her dear son, not yet a year old, whom she fed for love. Not far from that dream-lake, in moisture, grew a lotus, beautiful in purple bloom, the blossoms promising its fruit was near. At play with her sweet infant, Dryope plucked them as toys for him. I, too, was there, eagerly also, but I put forth my hand, and was ready to secure a spray, when I was startled by some drops of blood found falling from the blossoms which were plucked, and even the trembling branches shook in dread. Who wills the truth of this may learn from all quaint people of the land, who still relate the story of Nymph Lotus? She, they say, while flying from the lust of Priapus, was transformed quickly from her human shape into this tree, though she has kept her name. But ignorant of all this, Dryope, alarmed, decided she must now return. So having first adored the hallowed nymphs, upright she stood, and would have moved away, but both her feet were tangled in a root. There, as she struggled in its tightening hold, she could move nothing save her upper parts, and growing from that root, live bark began to gather slowly upward from the ground, spreading around her till it touched her loins. In terror, when she saw the clinging growth, she would have torn her hair out by the roots, but alas, when she clutched at it, her hands were filled with lotus leaves grown up from her changed head. Alas, her little son, Amphissus, felt his mother's bosom harden to his touch, and no life-stream refreshed his eager lips. And while I saw your cruel destiny, O oh dear sister, and could give no help, I clung to your loved body, and around the growing trunk and branches, hoping so to stop their evil growth, and I confess, endeavored there to hide beneath the bark. And oh, Andromon and her father then appeared to me while they were sadly seeking for Dryope, so there I had to show the lotus as it covered her, and they gave kisses to the warm wood and prostrate fell upon the ground and clung to the growing roots of their new darling tree, transformed from her. Dear sister, there was nothing of yourself remaining but your face, and I could see your tears drop slowly on the trembling leaves which had so marvelously grown on you, 
and while your lips remained uncovered, all the air surrounding echoed your complaint. If oaths of wretched women can have force, I swear I have not merited this fate, though innocent to suffer punishment. And if one word of my complaint is false, I pray I may soon wither, and my leaves fall from me as in blight, and let the axe devote me wretched to the flames. But take this infant from my branches to a nurse, and let him often play beneath this tree. His mother always. Let him drink his milk beneath my shade. Then he has learned to talk. Let him salute me, and in sorrow say, In this tree trunk my mother is concealed. Oh, let him dread the fate that lurks in ponds. Let him often play beneath his tree, and let him be persuaded every shrub contains the body of a goddess. Ah, farewell, my husband, sister, and farewell, my father. If my love remain in you, remember to protect my life from harm, so that the pruning knife may never clip my branches and protect my foliage from the browsing sheep. I cannot stoop to you. Oh, if you love me, lift your lips to mine, and let me kiss you, if but once again, before this growing lotus covers me. Lift up my darling infant to my lips. How can I hope to say much more to you? The new bark now is creeping up my neck, and creeping downward from my covered brow. Ah, do not close my live eyes with your hands. There is no need of it, for growing bark will spread and darken them before I die. Such were the last words her poor smothered lips could utter, for she was so quickly changed, and long thereafter the new branches kept the warmth of her lost body so transformed. And all the while that Iole told this, tearful in sorrow for her sister's fate, Alcmena, weeping, tried to comfort her. But as they wept together, suddenly a wonderful event astonished them, for, standing in the doorway, they beheld the old man Iolus, Known to them, but now transformed from age to youth, he seemed almost a boy, with light down on his cheeks, for Juno's daughter's Hebe, had renewed his years to please her husband Hercules. Just at the time when ready to make oath, she would not grant such gifts to other men. Themis had happily prevented her. For even now, she said, a civil strife is almost ready to break forth in Thebes, and Capaneus shall be invincible to all save the strong hand of Jove himself, and there two hostile brothers shall engage in bloody conflict, and Amphiraeus shall see his own ghost deep in yawning earth. His own son, dutiful to him, shall be both just and unjust in a single deed, for he, in vengeance of his father's death, shall slay his own mother, and confounded lose both home and reason, persecuted both by the grim furies and the awful ghost of his own murdered mother. This, until his wife, deluded, shall request of him the fatal golden necklace, and until the sword of Phygeus drains his kinsman's blood. And then at last his wife, Caleroy, will supplicate the mighty Jupiter to grant her infant sons the added years of youthful manhood. Then shall Jupiter, let he be guardian of ungathered days, grant from the future of Caleroy's sons the strength of manhood in their infancy. Do not let their victorious father's death be unavenged for a long while. Jove, prevailed upon, will claim beforehand all the gifts of Hebe, 
who is his known daughter-in-law and his stepdaughter, and with one act changed Caleroy's beardless boys to men of size. When Themis, prophesying future days, had said these words, the gods of heaven complained because they also could not grant the gift of youth to many others in this way. Aurora wept because her husband had white hair, and Ceres then bewailed the age of her Aesian, gray and stricken old, and Mulciber demanded with new life his Erichthonius might again appear. And Venus, thinking upon future days, said old Anchises' years must be restored. And every god preferred some favorite, until vexed with the clamor, Jupiter implored, if you can have regard for me, consider the strange blessings you desire. Does any one of you believe he can prevail against the settled will of fate? As Aeolus has returned by fate to those years spent by him, so by the fates Calero's sons from infancy must grow to manhood with no struggle on their part or force of their ambition. And you should endure your fortune with contented minds, I also must give all control to fate. If I had power to change the course of fate, I would not let advancing age break down my own son Aeacus, nor bend his back with weight of year, and Radamanthus should retain an everlasting flower of youth, together with my own son Minos, who is now despised because of his great age, so that his scepter has lost dignity. Such words of Jupiter controlled the gods, and none continued to complain. When they saw Aeacus, and Radamanthus old, and Minos also weary of his age, and they remembered Minos in his prime, had warred against great nations, till his name is mentioned with a certain cause of fear. But now, enfeebled by great age, he feared Miletus, Dion's son, because of his exultant youth and strength derived from his great father Phoebus. And although he well perceived Miletus's eye was fixed upon his throne, he did not dare to drive him from his kingdom. And although not forced, Miletus of his own accord did fly by swift ship over to the Asian shore, across the Aegean water, where he built the city of his name. End of Book Nine, Part Two Recording by Drew Altschul